0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
1: Think Health on 2 ser 107.3. Hello, I'm Nina Kopel. Welcome to the show. Today, we look at the link between chronic heart failure and anxiety. Are mental disorders making heart problems worse or just exacerbating existing issues? We'll find out. And,
2: in children's hospital, in bugs, with chemo and Team
1: Prescribing music for sick kids, I go to a children's hospital to see music therapy in action. But first, nurses in intensive care units have a difficult job. They have to monitor screens and all the technical medical stuff while juggling the emotional stress of working with some of the sickest patients in the hospital. And they're expected to smile the whole way through. Samantha Jakimovich from the University of Technology, Sydney, Faculty of Health is doing her PhD on this topic. She's looking at just how burnt-out nurses in intensive care units or ICUs can get by comparing their compassion fatigue levels with their compassion satisfaction levels.
3: Compassion fatigue has two sides to it. There's compassion satisfaction and compassion fatigue. And compassion satisfaction is the good feeling that you get when you're caring for people or um, it's like the altruistic side of things. Compassion fatigue has been studied a lot in Canada, the States and the UK and it's been looking at burnout and the secondary traumatic stress components of that is um, make up the compassion fatigue.
1: And is it something
3: that's specific for nurses or are doctors and other healthcare professionals experiencing the same problems? Uh, they do and I think there's not a lot of research on the medical profession itself on compassion fatigue But if you look at the nurses, the nurses are at the bedside, usually for 12-hour shifts. So they are with the patient, they're treating the patient, they're with the family for that whole time. The doctors are there as well and they're making decisions on the medical side of things and hopefully talking with the nurses about it and working out plans. But the doctors come and go. They've got a number of patients that they're looking after, whereas the nurse is just looking after one, maybe two, if it's a high dependency unit. So it's
1: easier for them to be emotionally invested in, in those people?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So
1: you talk about this idea of patient-centred nursing, which is an interesting idea to me
3: because I assume that all nursing would be patient-centred. A lot of people do. So even though patient-centred nursing should be across the board, often things get missed. Patient-centred nursing involves the right to the patient. The, the autonomy of the patient and, and the shared decision-making of the patient. Um, it involves providing a compassionate presence as well as a professional presence, having professional boundaries. It also involves the right to technology and the best medical care possible. Sometimes some of those things are compromised in intensive care. When you've got a patient that's intubated and can't communicate, if like on life support, if or if they're sedated, unconscious... So who knows what they would want? So it's hard to keep their rights and their decisions. Was there an advanced care directive somewhere that we don't know about? You know, that sort of thing. So those sorts of things can be compromised in a situation where they're so sick.
1: When we are talking about these ICU settings, are there any particular stresses that come from that for nurses that they have to handle in, the, in their jobs and day-to-day work?
3: Well, some things that have come up in the interviews is really the ICU ideology or the medical dominance of ICU, where people are going in there for treating. And I mean, it's part of the physician's training and everything that, you know, they they treat at all costs and sometimes that is, is good and of course the patients have the right to that treatment but sometimes you'll get patients that are, that maybe their prognosis is poor and the nurses can see that their prognosis is poor and their standard of living of um, before they came in will be much worse if they continue with treatment and sometimes the nurses felt like they were some of them said they felt like they were torturing their patients by continuing treatment when they knew that ultimately the patient wasn't going to survive so that caused them a lot of moral distress and that they took that home a lot of them sometimes in ICU palliation is not seen as a success whereas you can have a situation where the patient's wishes are being abided by the families okay with it and you've made the patient comfortable and you've been there providing the compassionate support and and that's a good situation for the nurse and the best situation probably for the family.
1: So so those are some of the concepts that you're dealing with in your research. What is your research actually aiming to discover or to find out?
3: What I'm I'm doing and almost finished doing is finding out what the level of compassion, satisfaction and fatigue the intensive care unit nurses have got in Australia and whether that's impacting the level of patient-centred nursing that they're providing and what support they need to be able to give the best patient-centred nursing. Also, I'm looking at to see if there's a link between providing patient-centred nursing and the nurse feeling compassion satisfaction. So I think it's important not to just concentrate on the negative side of things. It's important to enhance the good stuff, so to help nurses be happy in their work. It's a bit of a problem with nursing the nursing workforce that there's a shortage, and that's affecting the critical care nursing workforce just as much as the general workforce. As populations get ageing, more are required because you're getting more older people in intensive care. As people are coming into intensive care often they think I'm going to get fixed there because that's the place where everyone goes you know that's the highest level of medical care and that's not always the case. So it's not just the patient interactions
1: and the stress of having that intensive care unit around the nurses that is stressful. It's also the workplace mm-hmm.
3: politics and events that are mm-hmm. happening. Definitely. One thing that I've found in my research is that um, nurses depend on each other. So to debrief if they've been involved in something that's traumatic or a procedure that's traumatic or a death that's Um, they've been looking after a patient for a period of time and become quite attached to the patient and family, all of that sort of thing. Sometimes it's hard to just go home and talk to, um, you know, their husband, wife, children, partners or whoever, because they may not understand if they're not in that, working in that environment. So talking to each other, they understand that. So that that is something that i found is really, really important to the nurses.
1: And you mentioned that shortage of nurses, which is always interesting to me because it seems like a lot of people are studying nursing. Mm -hmm. So where does the shortage come from?
3: It is at the moment. I mean, we've got a lot of new grads going through here and, and there isn't enough new grad positions. It's good to have the new grads going through and employing them but the critical care nurses to be able to cope with the different things that are happening need to have quite a few years of experience. I actually found that in my study that the nurses with the postgraduate qualifications had a higher level of compassion satisfaction so it's really important to have that continued education and that time put into learning more to be able to get the satisfaction out of the role. I think that the nurses that are burnt out or the, the, um, are not maybe haven't worked out a coping mechanism or they've got different personalities, those sorts of things we need to look at because I think they're just leaving. I don't think that they're staying to work it out. I know you're, you're not quite done with your research, you're almost there.
1: What almost. Do, what are you, what's most surprised you about? this whole process.
3: So the levels of the nurses' compassion satisfaction and fatigue are are average. Now, ideally, it would be good to have high compassion satisfaction and low fatigue. I sort of thought there'd be more higher fatigue, but I'm I'm pleased that the nurses, you know, there's some resilience there. I'm needing to find out more about what we can do to get the compassion satisfaction up. The nurses are keen to get some help, so I was surprised. The participation rate was fantastic. They're really um, keen to talk about it and keen to do something about it to look after themselves, which ultimately helps their patients, which is really important.
1: Samantha Jakimowicz, PhD student in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. You might not know much about chronic heart failure, but the end-stage heart disease is a massive issue in Australia and one of the most common reasons for hospitalisation in people over the age of 65. Up to 50% of people with severe chronic heart failure will die within a year of diagnosis and to make matters worse, mental health disorders like depression and anxiety frequently compound the problem. PhD student Geoffrey Vongmanni set out to examine the relationship between anxiety and chronic heart failure, which we will sometimes refer to as CHF in this story. He joined producer Sam King and Dr Philip Newton of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health discuss his research and to begin with Sam wanted to know what CHF actually is.
0: So chronic heart failure is really end-stage heart disease. There are a number of underlying causes and essentially there's two broad types of heart failure. One is where it's an issue with the pumping of the heart and the other one is where it's a problem with the filling of the heart, and essentially because of these issues, it can no longer meet the metabolic needs of the body, mm. and you get a whole range of different symptoms. So people become fatigued, they become short of breath, they become, they can start to retain fluid, so they become really quite edematous, fluid overloaded, as we say. And you know this causes a whole range of issues, impacts on their quality of life. It. You know, and We know that it causes them to be hospitalised quite frequently, mm. in fact it's the most common reason that people over the age of 65 are actually hospitalised, so it's a major
4: health issue. What does a typical treatment course look like? Is it intensive?
0: Yeah, so again it depends on the cause, so if it's a pumping failure we have lots mm. of different um, drugs that we know work. Um, and. Then there's other more, you know, there's other therapies such as devices, things like um, pacemakers and biventricular pacemakers and things, but also diet and lifestyle. Um, and so we try to encourage people to self-manage. And so there's heart failure disease management programs, primarily nurse-led. We'll teach them strategies around, you know, self-management, trying to restrict their fluid, um, try to restrict the salt in the diet, although that's a little bit controversial. Right. Um, But also managing their medications, how to take them. Because these people can be on 10, 15, 20 different types of medications. Um, So that's quite a complex regime to have.
4: Sure, especially when you add mental illness to it. I mean, I understand that a mental illness like depression can lead to more hospital visits and a higher risk of death for these patients. Why is that?
5: Okay, so with depression, it's got some physiological mechanisms that kind of exacerbate what leads to hospitalizations and death in heart failure. In terms of the physiological mechanism, there's something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis. And this leads to, well, when you have depression, and also in the case of anxiety, you have an increased um, vasoconstriction. So the blood vessels become smaller in diameter. And you also have an increase in stroke volume, and this can exacerbate um, any underlying defects that comes with heart failure.
4: Kind of like what happens when you get stress—you get maybe a higher heart rate and your blood pressure goes up, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like that. How how much can that impact on someone's life?
5: In the case for depression, it, it affects their quality of life. Evidently, they're depressed. This can also influence their psychosocial needs. So, for example, the interactions with families and friends as well. They may not feel they have enough support. But in terms of health outcomes, there's been a lot of evidence. Mm. So a lot of very strong, robust studies and lots of reviews of these studies that depression does contribute to increased hospitalizations and also death in these patients.
4: All right, well, it's good that there's a lot of information out there on on depression specifically, but you guys are looking to shed some light on the symptom of anxiety. So what's the difference, first of all?
5: Actually, with the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders, um, edition four, which is right before the newest edition, edition five, anxiety and depression were distinct diagnoses, but now as of edition five, the latest one, they have now made anxiety as a specifier of depression, so it's no longer a separate diagnosis. The reasons for this may be to help, uh, well, it's beyond me why they've made a the new distinction sure. as a specifier, but it could help in uh, increasing awareness of anxiety. See, if like, a clinician looks at clinical practice guidelines of depression because they know it's common in heart failure, then they'd see in the guidelines to also look at Anxiety
4: as a specifier for depression. Hmm. Well, how much research is there on anxiety and the impact on these patients?
5: Um, not many in comparison to depression. It's kind of a newer area of research. But the thing is also the effects of anxiety are a bit more subtle. From the review I recently published, me and my team, we found that anxiety did not contribute to um, mortality so no increased risk of deaths Mm. and this has also been replicated in other recent reviews as well but we did see Um, the possibility, so it's not certain yet, that anxiety leads to an increased hospitalisation. I'm
4: going to go out on a bit of a limb, if you don't mind. It seems logical that having a condition like chronic heart failure can make people pretty anxious, maybe even people who otherwise wouldn't have a mood disorder. Do you think anxiety is caused by CHF physiologically or something that builds up as a result of living with it every day?
5: The prevalence of anxiety in the general population currently stands at approximately 10%. In the cardiovascular population, specifically heart failure, this has been pulled to around a bit higher, so 13%. So yes, we can imagine that if you have heart failure, you'd be anxious anyway, but there is still a little bit more of an increased population of people with anxiety, but that's just the prevalence of clinically diagnosed anxiety. But in terms of clinical influential anxiety where the symptoms are present, but they may not necessarily have the diagnosis, that prevalence is a bit higher and that's around at 55%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, So for the remaining 45%, they don't have anxiety and that's what's interesting about that
4: statistic. Okay. I guess what I'm driving at, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but could high anxiety be a red flag for for heart failure patients? You know, could it be a diagnostic tool?
0: Uh, No, I don't think it'll be a diagnostic tool. What you have to be a little bit careful of is there'll be people who will have underlying anxiety issues well before they Mm. have heart failure and then there'll be people who will become anxious when they become acutely unwell because of their heart failure. There may mm. be common pathways and there may be influences in there, but in terms of it being a cause, I don't think we we know enough about that at the moment. So no, I can't see it being an early screening.
4: Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of grey areas as with anything uh, related to mental illness. How did you guys go about uh, researching this, this report you put out? We decided
5: to look at psychological disorders and a project we're running with St Vincent's Hospital. Phil knows about it, and Phil helps runs it as well. It's a lace study, and that kind of jogged my interest into conducting the review. Sure. And also at the time, there was no existing reviews looking at anxiety in the heart failure population. Yet.
4: Yeah. What was it that surprised you most about the results?
5: Um, That anxiety did not contribute to um, mortality, so increased deaths in heart failure patients. But at the same time, um, with the current evidence that stands, I guess even though it's been consistent, there hasn't been a lot of studies that have investigated yet. Mm -hmm. There's only been maybe approximately 10 studies to date that look at anxiety and death and also anxiety and hospitalization.
1: PhD student Geoffrey Vongmani, chatting with producer Sam King, and Dr Philip Newton from the University of Technology, Sydney, Faculty of Health.
0: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
1: Sadness, sickness, fear. They're all words that would be easy to associate with a children's hospital, but As well as the doctors, nurses and specialists working tirelessly to make sick kids better, there are people around to make them happier as well. And that's where music therapy comes in. I went to Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick to hear music therapist Matt Ralph in action and to see just how powerful a healing tool music can be. Walking into the hospital, it's much cheerier than I was expecting – artworks line the brightly coloured walls, clown doctors roam the halls and Matt is never too far away with his trolley of musical instruments. In a room in an oncology ward, mostly for kids with cancer, Ruby's hard at work with Matt and her family, perfecting the lyrics to this special song. It's a thank you message to the Great Britain Olympic team who've taken time out of their training for Rio to wish her better in video messages. The hospital runs a fun program for the kids where every test or treatment they receive, they get this unique, colourful bead which they string together, kind of like one of those friendship bracelets you used to make as a kid. For the kids here, it's a colourful portrayal of their experience here in hospital. Ruby's is at the front of the room, and it's colourful, but long. But right now isn't time for tests or treatments. Ruby's in bed surrounded by her creative team, her parents, and Matt, the music therapist. And they're all working really hard to find the perfect words to finish this song. Luckily, Ruby is pretty on the ball with the lyrics. Singing
2: this with me, but then we need something la-la-like. Light?
4: light,
1: light,
2: Singing this with me... On my... On my mic?
1: Polite. Polite, that's... You are such a good rhymer. Music has always been a part of Matt's life, but when he first started learning, he had no idea that him and his guitar would end up spending so much time in a hospital.
2: You walk into a bay with six beds and all the curtains are drawn. And I walk in with, say, my trolley of instruments and... Hey, how's everyone going? hi, have a little chat, see a shaker, I've got a new song, do you want to play this? Oh, and then I'll nip around, hey, do you want to play too? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, OK, that would be nice. OK, well, I'm just going to pull the curtain back, OK, so you can see each other. And, and you, know, you know, 10 minutes later, um, all the curtains are drawn, the sun's coming through, all the kids have got instruments, the parents are relaxed, the nurses are more relaxed, the doctors have got easier access to, you know, see the kids. And that's an important role. And that's easy for a music therapist to achieve because that's the nature of music. Is to have a group, you know, jam session.
1: But Matt was bringing music to these corridors before he even studied music therapy. As a Captain Starlight for the Starlight Foundation,
2: I just wanted to know more about music therapy. So whilst I was a Captain Starlight, I studied at UTS the Masters of Music Therapy. Just. Apps actually to just increase my knowledge as as to you know why why it works so well and yeah then when I when I graduated I think that was 2012 there it just so happened that uh, this position came up at the hospital and uh, you know took a few conversations before I actually realized oh I could act could work as a music therapist and but now I absolutely love it yeah
1: when he transitioned from Captain Starlight to Matt the music therapist it took a bit of explaining but the kids were soon on board
2: but they were good about that, and I would come up with little stories about how, oh, my goodness, you know, I loved Earth so much that I actually got a visa to stay here for a while, and now I'm actually doing, like, a human job. You know, so I was this kind of alien music therapist there for a while for some of the kids, but they got the joke, and, um, you know, they, they seem to work through that.
1: But what really is music therapy? What could Matt do with his masters in music therapy that he couldn't do as Captain Starlight?
2: as a captain starlight the emphasis is on entertainment and distraction and recreation whereas with music therapy you can name your your therapeutic objective you can say i want to reduce isolation for this child whereas that's not really in the scope of perhaps Captain Starlight, oh, of course, you're, you're, um, you're, you are actually achieving the same thing by involving kids in quizzes and, you know, things like that. But as a music therapist, there's just another focus. It's, it's another layer. The parents would actually talk to me in a different way. They'd want to know more about me, and I just sort of felt as though I wanted to talk to them on that level. So music therapy became a, an easier way to do that.
1: Music therapy might not seem like as hard a science as medicine, but it has clear goals: stress reduction, family bonding, and empowerment.
2: There was a you know young boy had an accident, was in um, ICU. Started off in incredibly bad shape. They had no idea, you know, how it was all going to go. It was it was day by day. This boy was really into sport. Hadn't even thought about music and at all music was not necessarily part of his life, his experience. And here he is in the intensive care unit with very limited movement from the country, family very stressed. He obviously extremely stressed and upset. Four days, months, you know, a long time in, in this ward through first meeting him as a Captain Starlight and realizing that music could be his thing I had no allegiance to music necessarily. I just saw that music could be something that he could do. We started off by just finding out what he was interested in and having conversations about that. And if you're in if you're in hospital and you can't move and the only thing you can do is communicate, well, you want to be engaged about what you can do or what or what you're interested in. And so he was very much into motocross bikes. So. Uh, we searched lots of photos and um, we found out one of his heroes and asked him to come in and meet him and opened up the community to what he was going through. So he felt like there was a large community support for him. We put posters of all his, you know, the, the motorbikes that he liked all around the room. So they're, they're the things that he likes but can't do, so what can he do to complement that? Well he could make choices about things and at this point and so we started making soundtracks to the photos of all the motorbikes that he liked and then finding finding video footage of him riding his motorbike and and putting it together and then creating music to that and he started to enjoy that and then as he started to get more movement he might play an instrument and we record that so music was something that he could do it gave him experiences of success, uh, and it also, as a, uh, during this time where transitioning between, say Captain Starlight to live Live wire, which is the adolescent program to music therapy, was being able to show those slideshows and show the music that he created on the TV network at the hospital, which goes across the whole hospital to all the beds in all the in all the wards, so all the kids can see, which took him from his very isolated room to being able to communicate and get feedback from other kids across the whole hospital. And, and then we, he got his motorbike fixed uh, by a mechanic up in his country town. And being able to create something together, giving him the opportunity to feel as though he can, with, with his limited amount of movement at this point, still make something to send back to the mechanic to say thank you so much so we wrote this song and you know we put it together with some some images and and emailed it to him and and he felt empowered by still being able to you know like in in, still be able to communicate and give to the community.
1: For sick kids in hospital there are a lot of treatments they have to have a lot of things they have to do and a whole bunch of things they wish they could do but might not be able to. Music therapy is one of the few things that's not only fun, but it's completely their choice. They can say no to Matt and his trolley of instruments whenever they want, and that's completely okay. But Matt's pretty good at encouraging kids to get involved, even with the older kids, who can be harder to win over.
2: I wouldn't necessarily just walk in and say, oh, um, are you into music? Because if, if she says no... Well, then it's hard for me to, oh, well, I'm a music therapist. It, it's hard for me to sort of justify why I'm still talking to her, you know. So I won't say, oh, hi, I'm a music therapist. Are you into music? Because generally the answer will be no. Uh, I'll say, hey, how, how, how are you? Um, oh, wow. and I'll notice something, you know. I'll notice that she's got some artwork or a drawing. And I'll say, oh, that's fantastic. Did, did you do that? And yeah, yeah. And just chat to her about what, she likes oh, did you, you know the, whether it's charcoal or pencil drawings or what influenced her drawings just finding out you know, who she is other than someone with a, an illness you know just finding out what, what did you do three weeks ago when you know this is fantastic artwork. And then I will um, perhaps ask her if she wouldn't mind uh, sharing her artwork with some of the other. I say, oh, I know, you know someone here, they love artwork. Could, could I show one of your drawings? And generally they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And with this particular girl, we made a slideshow for all the artwork, and which then perfectly led on to, oh, well, we, it would be good to have some music for that. You know? And then let's get the laptop out, let's get the iPad. And so often with, with adolescents, they're very much you know, into technology, and so we'll create some really great things with the, with the iPad, and that the good thing about that is then you've got a then you've got a, like a file, and then they can share that file, just email it to their friends, email it to their family. It's a really great way of saying, look, I'm in hospital, but let's not talk about my illness. Let's talk about this fantastic, you know, drawing I've just done and this fantastic music.
1: Would you say that all music's therapy?
2: I would. Some people wouldn't. You know, it's a bit controversial. Some people will say. You shouldn't necessarily encourage children to listen to you know very dark music when they're going through a very dark time and yeah there are research findings that actually say that it's probably a good idea to prescribe music just like you prescribe anything. My angle on it is um, that I would rather them find some way to express or to work through or to find support and if music is their thing, if they're finding some sort of company with with something and reducing their feeling of loneliness, if they're in a way stretching across and relating to somebody else who's feeling this, perhaps that would work against the depressive nature of the music.
1: But in Ruby's room today, the music is all upbeat. The family and Matt are practising a few more times before they round up the nurses, record their video and send it off to the Great Britain Olympic team as they prepare for Rio.
2: Oh, uh, so let's go from the top. Yeah, A big hello oh. to Team GB. Oh, it's strong. With memes mm-hmm. from red Cat singing mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. with me. It's right. We mm-hmm. love the video mm-hmm. From, mm-hmm. The from the Roman mm-hmm. And the doctors mm-hmm. and nurses mm-hmm. thought it was great.
1: Don't forget, if you want to hear more from us at Think Health, you can find us online at 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. Or you can find us on your favourite podcast app. Just search Think Health and don't forget to subscribe. Remember as well, I'm not a doctor, so if the show has raised any questions for you, head to your GP. The show is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Nina Copel. See you next week for more Think Health research and news.
2: Everyone in Team GB go for gold, gold, gold. Everyone in Team GB go for gold, gold, gold. Everyone in Team GB go for gold, gold, gold. Woo! From today.
4: Everyone here. Got it. (laughs) Yeah.